that history can be inspirational for jewelry designers and makers, it's not surprising. The making of jewelry dates back centuries, and some of the techniques to produce jewelry were so specialist, the know-how did not get passed on throughout time. The importance of preservation was a topic of discussion last month, and today I will be talking to an artist, craftsman, researcher and educator who has taken inspiration from and explored the very old technique of granulation both technically and conceptually. To talk about his body of work, inspiration and working practice, I have invited Dr. David Höcke. Welcome, David. Oh, thank you, Sophie. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to this and thank you for the invitation. So, David, to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Oh, yeah, I'm uh, David Höcke. I'm an artist silversmith and I'm, uh, I, I live in Belgium and I also have my own studio in Belgium. Professionally, yeah, I um, studied jewelry design in Antwerp in the late 80s and uh, Immediately after that, I started then my, my own studio. In the meantime, I'm also a professor in Hasselt, which is a university college where I mainly work with MA students and with PhD students, guiding them in their research. And besides that, I also have some time to do my own research, which is actually most my own work. And you completed a practice-based PhD prior to starting to help others with their PhDs. And the work you created actually since, and at that point, revolved around granulation. Could you tell us how you got interested in this technique and, and why it attracted you at first? Well, I heard about granulation in my study. It was about in the classes of jewelry history and I remember I was quite interested that, that in the in the mystical or let's say the the secret of granulation. Um, but of course, I forgot. Um, I also didn't go into jewelry after my study. But then at some point, it, it was ninety six, uh, so a very long time ago, that uh, the Association of Goldsmiths Art in Hanau, it's a city in Germany, and they also have a, a gold and silver museum. They organized a competition and exhibition about granulation. And they asked uh, jewelry designers, silversmiths, sculptors even to uh, make things and make new interpretations of the ancient technique of granulation. I was struck by that and I thought, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take part in this competition. And since I I was trained as a, as a jewelry designer, but I Actually, I never made jewelry afterwards. And so after graduating, I had to start to learn my own techniques. I was self-taught silversmith, so I had to learn to hammer and uh, get to know all these things. I had developed my own methods. So I continued doing that with granulation as well. I did not, did not know much about granulation, but I knew some. And I tried to build a vessel. So the vessels I was doing at that time, and I tried to build a vessel with spheres with little granules. And that was the work I sent in for this competition. In your PhD, you took the concept of granulation perhaps one step further, right? You looked at granulation and how you could evolve it into a new technique. Could you tell us a little bit more how all of that happened? 
So without uh, really knowing what granulation really was and, and without knowing the history, I created those two vessels for that competition. And afterwards, uh, I found out that um, there was hardly any granulation in silver. There were, there were some pieces, of course, um, but not very much. Next to that, there was um, hardly any pieces known where um, jewelry was built up with granulation. It mostly was a decorative technique. So there were some a few examples known where granules built up like small earrings and things like that. But the combination silver work and uh, building with granulation was never uh, made before. So that was actually a very special moment to discover that as an artist, when you find out that you are doing something which is new, that was also uh, a perfect start to, to, um, yeah, to start this uh, research project, this PhD research project. So the beginning of that project was mostly technical, where I started to explore the technique, getting to know the technique, learning, and um, trying to go to extremes. How big can I go? How long? How, etc. All finding out these things. At some point, of course, you have to read, you have to look at other work. It's not just focus on that technique. I'm also doing other things. And at some point, when you look with, when you work with very small elements like these granules, they uh, imagine they are metal balls of two millimeter, one millimeter, sometimes three millimeter. When you throw them in a in a bowl, for example, they just they don't lie there chaotically. They order themselves a little bit, which is called self organization of little elements. So I went into that, I studied that, and. Uh, at the same time, also this, I was looking at structures of atoms and molecules, how they order themselves. Reading into that, I found out that they have been working, making like this study examples with, with, with spheres. And there was this one principle that struck me, and there was the kissing principle. Or, or the kissing principle is connected to the idea of the kissing number. And the kissing number is when you have one sphere of a certain, or let's say you have one sphere of a certain size, and then the kissing number is the amount of spheres that can touch that one sphere at the same time. So it's a, it's a limited number. And next to that, there was also the idea of just kissing spheres. It's um, when two spheres touch, they only touch in one point, no matter how big the sphere is. And I thought this is, an extremely poetic idea uh, that comes through yeah, geometry and mathematics. And that interested me enormously. And from that point on, I also looked at granulation as, as something poetic. Yeah? Uh, the two spheres also, yeah, this kissing principle that interested me a lot. And also this fusion, huh? when kissing and fusion, there's a relation with the two. And that's when I also um, uh, made the shift in my methodology. It was not just about granulation, uh, not just about its technique and finding all these possibilities, but also how granulation can be uh, an idea, can be a concept to do other things without using the technique of granulation. Mm. I think you've 
proposed a real beautiful example of how a technique can be a starting point, but that you can look at a technique as a concept and what it means and how it relates to other disciplines like mathematics. and Also, uh, Sophie, when this kissing spheres, eh, when you have two, imagine you have your soldering block and you have two spheres, let's say three, four millimeter, that's lying on the block and they touch each other. Eh? So you have this, this image of the kissing spheres. And when you heat this very slowly with the flame, at the, at the touching point, it will start to fuse slowly. And then if you go on with the flame, then all of a sudden it becomes one sphere again. And also that idea is extremely uh, poetic. Uh, and I think it's very inspirational. And also just by doing, by making work, um, finding these things out, I think that's, uh, that's one of the pleasures of our profession. So David, maybe for those who don't know, could you tell us a little bit more about what granulation in fact is? So what is uh, granulation? It's an ancient technique in goldsmith's art. Uh, it's a goldsmithing technique. It's a decorative technique where very small little spheres, metal spheres, decorate a surface and it's mainly used in jewelry that means that it's small and the little spheres when we say a sphere of one millimeter is already very big in jewelry the technique originated like four thousand years ago in the middle east uh, but was in at its peak during uh, the greek and the etruscan period so they made pieces with hundred thousands of little little spheres they it's almost like dust um, where they then decorate surfaces making patterns or making just a matte surface with little very little spheres but what is actually the principle of granulation is that first you have the sphere uh, that's uh, one of the main things um, that needs to be there little spheres and when you have a little amount of metal uh, and you heat it, it automatically turns into a sphere. Everybody who has been working with jewelry, who has been soldering, knows that when you heat it too, too quickly, it turns into a perfect sphere. And that's the principle on how they made all this uh, and how I make all these little spheres by this power. And um, the other principle is that the connection between all those little spheres and the base metal, the piece of jewelry, is done without solder. Uh, and that makes it possible to uh, create very fine joints between the surface and the little sphere. So, but if we don't use solder, how do we connect then uh, two metal elements together? And it's... Um, it's based on the idea of reaction soldering. And that is um, where not solder is the connecting agent, but copper is, or copper oxide. And we know that copper, when you have an alloy, when you have fine gold, which has a high melting point, and you add copper also at a high melting point, when you add the two together, the melting point goes down. So that's the principle behind reaction soldering. And to put it more concrete, if you have the surface of that uh, piece of jewelry and you cover that with a fine layer of copper, of copper oxide, and you cover the surface of the little spheres with copper and you heat all of that, that on the surface of the metal, 
there is an, from the new alloy with a very high amount of copper, so with a very low melting point. And this way we can heat up the spheres, we can heat up the piece of jewelry and only the surface of the metal will melt. So the elements can join without the form of these of those elements will change. So the core of the of the uh, of the little spheres they stay hard, and it's only on the surface that they melt. And back then, in the Middle East, four thousand years ago, it was uh, in the in the area of Iraq, and also later, they used malachite powder. They had malachite, which is uh, contains a lot of copper. They grind it into dust mixed it with water and with glue, and then they painted it on, uh, on the surface and on the little spheres. So they painted actually a fine layer of copper on. I don't do that that way, because I think it's too messy. And we also have different methods now. I copper plate my elements, uh, which is, uh, it's cleaner, it's faster, and it uh, also works much better. So that's, the, the idea behind, or let's say the principle, the technical principle behind uh, granulation. And what was mostly done, it was uh, throughout history used as a decorative technique uh, um, where you have the piece of jewelry and the decoration, the little spheres were on the piece of jewelry. So, and I, as I said before, very seldom the little spheres were used to build, yeah, to construct something like an earring or a few examples are known uh, in history and then there's also some granulation on larger silver work but also only a few examples known uh, so it's mostly in gold and on jewelry so and when i was uh, we had this competition in 96 and there i was not aware of this history and i was not aware of this uh, the whole technical principles behind it i knew some and that's what i used to start building my, my vessels only with these granules. Uh, of course, the granules had to be big enough, so I had to make them bigger. Also, again, using the same principle that a little piece of metal heated up and then it goes into a, a little sphere. I used that principle and then I built my, my first vessels. I built them in a mold. So I had a, I had a mold, fire concrete, and I worked on the inside where I threw some granules in. The granules were copper plated in advance. And then they touch because a sphere, it rolls away, but it also rolls down to the, to the deepest point of a, of a mold, uh, of, a, of, a, of something hollow. So there they touch, uh, they touch there. And then with a flame, large flame, I heat it until the surface melts and then they melt together. And then I add another 10 and another 10. And that's how I very slowly build up my work. The advantages of building slowly is that I can interfere when I heat too much or not enough, I can saw things away or uh, heat once more. So um, I can repair also uh, a little bit and during the process. And then I build up until yeah, the piece is finished and then finished is finished. And then it's uh, sometimes I patinate it, make it a little bit more dark, uh, but no filing, no sanding, no polishing is done. You make quite a lot of decisions when you produce your mold for your design. 
what's the process in in deciding what the shape of that mold is going to be and how happy are you with that decision making so advanced in advance of actually producing the piece that's how i started them i uh, i've been working with molds before uh, in my in casting so i i knew uh, how to make molds uh, and the most easy way to make a mold is when you or let's say to, to have a hemispherical mold is to have a, a plastic football and uh, and you throw on the football you throw fireproof concrete where you can uh, make a fireplace in and then the concrete gets hard you take out the football and you have a perfect mold to to work in so that's how i started with this hemispherical mold and then you can make a hemisphere in silver but one of the advantage of something spherical is that it can move so you can go higher than the mount you can actually make a complete sphere in it yeah and i've also made some cylindrical uh, pieces in in the mold so the mold is very yeah then the the shape is definitely decided in advance huh? but it's a good question because i also find something for that so i also started building with the spheres without a mold and then something completely different uh, different happened yeah do you see the the mold as a tool or as a part of the work oh as a tool yeah i know that's they are nice eh? if they are in my studio this collection of molds but they are no they are not part of my work I wanted to ask a question, uh, David, on what you said earlier. You said you studied to be a jeweler, but you ended up going into silversmithing and teaching yourself these skills along the way. What was it in terms of silversmithing that really drew you away from the jewelry side of things? It was definitely the the size of the of the of the pieces and the. the the physicality uh, of, of working with these larger uh, objects and uh, and with the sheet and the hammering, it was more, it was tougher, but I enjoyed it more than this very precise work on the bench. Right after graduating, I still, I made a few pieces of jewelry, but very quickly I started with the silversmithing. I also got more success with it. So that's also, uh, people were more interested in the larger pieces I made. And of course, uh, that's also a factor that plays a role. If you have something success, then of course, it's a, you tend to to work on that uh, on that more. Do you think the separation of the objects from the body, so that maybe you're a viewer rather than a wearer, and or did that not necessarily play a role? Yeah, that played a role too. Uh, I uh, when I was at school, I actually I made jewelry, but they were all completely unwearable. They, I, I wasn't so much interested in the wearability of the pieces. So I made kind of small jewelry size objects um, using the techniques of jewelry. That's that's definitely something I liked, and I also liked the jewelry that other people made uh, more than my own. I still have the the feeling that jewelry should be wearable, but I I never got so far to make good jewelry that was wearable. So. Maybe one day I will start with it again, but right now it's not my my main interest. Since it all started with a competition, I 
also wanted to ask, and you've also won quite a few of them, including the Bavarian State Prize for Contemporary Craft, both in 2007 and 2019. How important do you think it is for artists to apply to competition? What purpose do you think they serve um, for those who invest that time? I think it's very important to take part in competitions, especially for young people or let's say for young artists and no matter the age, but especially in the beginning of a career, I think it's very important. It's, it's good to, and a competition is never alone, there's always the exhibition. Uh, so it's, it's good that uh, you can make your work visible. The, the effort to make new work is there, that's, that's very good. And, and if you're lucky, then, then you can even get a prize and make some money maybe. And, and for myself, that's the same thing. I also like my work to be visible, but mostly when I'm not thinking about the, the network or, or, or the money that you can win is that it gives me deadlines and it forces me to do something new because I have a tendency to continue doing what I do. So to do every time the same thing again, and competitions, they have certain teams, they have a title, and that yeah, gives me inspiration to think out of my box. Your work has for many years explored this three-dimensional. We've talked about, you know, the silversmithing. But recently, you have started exploring the material, perhaps through a two-dimensional way, in a two-dimensional way, and touched upon abstraction. What has brought this development on in your work? I've been drawing my whole life. I think that's something I did, uh, but I never showed that it's just for my own inspiration to hang on my own walls. Why did I start with those metal sheets? Uh, it was in a time that I was so fed up with my own work. Uh, I was bored with my work because it took so long and it was it required so much planning um, to make a granulated piece. It's uh, the planning in advance is, is huge. I have to prepare all the, the spheres. I have to think about the shape in advance and then working weeks or months to finish a piece. Uh, and then again, another one. And uh, also the evolution at some point was, was very slow. For me, myself, when I'm working on it, is the evolution huge. Eh? Let's say going from a sphere of three millimeter to a sphere of two millimeter. That is a completely different work for me. But when I see those things then in an exhibition, then I and I take some distance, then I can say, yeah, it's hardly any difference eh? in, in, in the result. And in that time, I wanted to have something more spontaneous, uh, something more uh, direct. Uh, like with drawing or with painting, that you do something and you have immediate result. And there I started to paint, but I didn't, at that time, I didn't want to work on paper or, or let's say, or, or, or with paint. I wanted to work with metal. So I started to paint with patina, with patines on the silver. And that, that was so exciting. It's also very difficult because there's no way back. Eh? It's what you do. It's there. And that's it. And uh, which is also a very beautiful idea that is the, the presence of the artist is the, the moment is moment of creation is, is, is visible and is still there. And that's what I liked very much and still do until now. And that's was one of the, the shifts I made to start working two dimensional. And also 
I've been working with not only in my granulation work with these small elements, but also with big elements. Huh? I'm working, got my inspiration from molecules and atoms, but also from the moon and the sun, the, our, the, our biggest elements in, uh, in the universe, which are also spheres. And I liked to work with them to uh, portray the moon and uh, or make a moon. Um, and in that case, I integrated that idea also in this in this flat work. And if you if you look at the moon, you don't see something three dimensional. You see a flat thing hey, because it's so far. On one of the the sheets, I painted with uh, transparent varnish a circle. Uh, on a, so you have a, a white silver sheet and then a, a painted uh, a varnish painted circle and then I patinated the rest so it's kind of the white moon and eh, silver on a black uh, on a black background so I'm, I'm um, at this point I'm still very happy with this kind of work and that's also yeah what I'm yeah what I'm working on now and also I have to tell you something about the sheet uh, talking about the directness and the amount of work I used to uh, invest in my previous work that I want to get rid of it. But then I start with a sheet. It's a sheet of one meter, one meter, a half a meter uh, wide and 0 0.3 millimeter thick. But the sheet, like the new sheet, I mean, that's not, it's not nice, eh? so industrial. So I started hammering the sheets. And of course that goes all the way. It goes up and down. And then my biggest effort was to hammer it flat again, try to have it flat again. So it took me days and days to make a nice sheet where I could then be spontaneous on. Um, of course, this long work also gave me yeah, the nice subtle structure of the sheet. And that's something, yeah, that's an, some extra value uh, to, in comparison to the, the industrial sheet. Mm. In a way, you know, many of your pieces are extremely well made and it's fair to say you have an eye for detail that it has to be just so or you're not, I think you're not ready to release the, the piece yet. Um, could you share a little bit more on on what happens in your process? When do you decide that it is, particularly with this sheet, you know, when it is, when is it good? How can you, you know, where do you stop? And and in and perhaps as well, what made you choose then silver, for example? Because if you you've talked about how you draw, but these pieces you don't consider necessarily your work. What's what's your relationship with the silver that you keep? being drawn into this material which does have its slowness to it in terms of manufacturing it i am so since i'm i'm always starting with something i don't know it's uh, i'm trying things out i'm learning and then there is this huge concentration uh, on the work and then i'm trying to do as good as i can uh, um, but I mean, these things go slow, it, it can take years. Eh? Um, but then at some point I mastered this technique so good that I can almost finish it like it's it's made by a machine. And then I also start getting bored with it. Uh, that's something I don't want, And but that's 
that's a little bit in me to, to go to this perfection and to have complete control over everything. But as an artist, I don't like that idea very much. So what I do to, to challenge that is that I very often in my choice of material, I make the sheet too, too thin, for example, or I make my work too big, making it hardly possible to have it perfectly finished. And that's what I'm very interested in for the example of the sheet. Um, it's too big to have a flat sheet. I, can't, I can never get it flat again. So the, uh, the structure, which is um, yeah, caused by the hammering, but it's a useless hammering eh? because you had the flat sheet. So why would you hammer it? In a way, David, would you say that we as viewers can see the debate you have internally between your craftsman and your artist, and that you we are sort of witnessing you challenging you, the artist challenging you, the craftsman? Yeah, I think so. I think that's very well formulated um, that these things um, are in a battle. Huh? So this, uh, this perfect idea of craft is, uh, is interesting, but I think I'm, uh, I can do that at, in, in my own way. And, and then at, at a certain point, I think it's, um, yeah, it doesn't always have this poetic idea. And that's something I'm more interested in also. Um, this control, uh, I all of a sudden, I made this book titled Risky Business. And it's, uh, it refers to the, to the work I'm trying to do now to, take, to put more risk in my own work. For example, when I'm, I'm also granulating more in a traditional way. Uh, I started with that a few years ago. Uh, so imagine it's a work, it's like 30 centimeters high, it's a vessel. 0.8 sheet hammered and on that sheet I granulate very small uh, little spheres. So what, what is granulation on a sheet? That means that the surface of the sheet needs to be molten, but not the inside of the sheet. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a very small difference between outside and inside. So when it's with a flame, which is like half a meter, it's, it's this kind of flame, it's like, a huge torch to get this surface molten. I mean, this kind of risk, I think that's, uh, yeah. And this can never be done perfectly. Uh, although I try to work perfectly, but through the choice of material and the choice of the difficult uh, process, it can never be perfect. So that's uh, some idea that I quite like. And the piece you're talking about, David, has quite a lot of space between the granules by, by positioning them so far away from each other. If there is a mistake, everyone will be able to see because there's not another granule next to it that will cover up the connection between the, the granule. And the, so by positioning it that way, you're also opening up the viewer's opportunity, sort of saying this is a process that is really risky and challenging, which you might otherwise be able to mask. We get a picture of what it is like to make these pieces, even though we're obviously not involved. Yeah, but still, it's uh, yeah, it's true what you say, but it's uh, it still is a uh, is something difficult. Eh? I mean, because like my my peers understand what I'm 
working on and they they have the same problems eh? i mean every every craftsman that works on a on a on a on a serious level uh, has the same problems eh? you cannot make good work without making lots of mistakes in it uh, because yeah then then you can repeat something that's already existing and that's that's not the idea but yeah all this effort and uh, yeah difficulties that go into a work i mean i think 80% of the people don't see that don't feel that and it's then yeah those people who feel it or let's say then you can make a connection with those when they understand uh when they understand the work yeah. in terms of communicating to the the 80% who don't necessarily speak the language of the craft have you found any media or communication tools that have bridged that gap successfully or do you feel that's still something that isn't quite resolved no i don't know i'm i'm not working on that very intensively on this communication part i communicate through my website and to you know every 10 years i try to make a book those people like those books because it's it's appealing work i would say uh, but still i mean all this lots of things behind the work is not uh, is uh, is lost in in a kind of book huh? it's it's very difficult then to show all this craft because it's not that I, I want to share everything to everybody about how I do things, what materials I use, but sharing too much crafty things then takes the focus away from the ideas as well. And so it's a, it's a difficult balance, I think, in this communication part. Some listeners may not know, but you were in fact one of my professors when I was completing my MA in Hasselt, and you introduced me to a range of key critical text on craft. So talking about the ideas and how important is it for you to engage with the theory and, and throughout the years has this changed? Reading is good for everybody. <laughs> and... Uh, and as an artist, I think it's you should read what inspires you, what gives you inspiration, and what gives you uh, energy to work, for example, or that uh, yeah gives you ideas or um, changes your view on things. I think those things one should read as much as possible. But then, and I did that too. I'm quite a reader. Um, but then, for a PhD, which is a, a focused project, one has to read more specifically because. You have to know what's going on in the world, what the theory says about your discipline, what uh, what other researchers have done. You have to know that um, because you also have to write something about it in the end of the, of of, uh, of the research. So there, I dug in into yeah everything what's which was available and what uh, what I could find, and I read it all. Where I, you know, you start somewhere, right? you find one text that, that you think, yeah, this is really interesting. And then you find, look at the bibliography, see what, what, what kind of text um, this text is referencing to. And, and then you slowly build up uh, your own bibliography. Yeah? 
the the theory that you have been reading has spanned multiple disciplines. So, for example, you started looking at mathematical concepts and how did you bridge the gap? Because these the language of these books or 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 references are are very perhaps very different than the artistic language that we're perhaps used to how are were you able to make that shift the language is not so different different than the artistic language because it's also very visual it's a very visual idea and 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 many principles that we uh, work with happen in nature as well the growth of a tree or the growth of a flower I think that um, there's lots of principles that that we use as well. It's uh, gravity, for example, as uh, something that everybody uses, or let's say the fluidity of water, um, the strongness of metal. So there is a bridge, but that bridge is small. If the interest is there, I think there's no problem in reading it. So what I what I especially was interested in was in this idea of self-organization, the idea of chaos and order, what I was interested in, geometry, and then this craft theory, which was also interesting. But yeah, you, you read and then you get different opinions from different authors. And that's it, because I haven't been... Uh, working on my own idea what craft should be I, do, I, I don't see that uh, as my job I'm not in a position to to I have my idea but that's it I'm not going to write a book about it um, yeah so it does writing still play a role because you wrote for your PhD do you still write about your work and how the ideas relate or are you now focusing mainly on the, on the objects and allow them to speak for themselves well, I've been writing some things and what I mostly do is talking about it. I mean, I like to give lectures about my work and to, um, to try to explain ideas and my, uh, my choices, uh, my decisions in, in, uh, in how I work. The writing and the, the, uh, the tools of writing I'm mostly using when I work with my students, when I supervise my PhD students, when they have to write about their work which is, of course, a constant challenge. And uh, yeah, it's a difficult thing to talk about your work and to, to write about it. So for me, I'm not so much into that anymore, unless I have to. Uh, but most of the time, I'm uh, using this, what I learned, to help other people. If there's anyone listening who perhaps has not had the opportunity to be introduced to sort of key texts in craft, which books or texts were most influential to you and or do you think they should really perhaps start with when i was discovering all those texts it was early 2000 so it's uh, 15 to 20 years ago huh? but what i was very interested in was what bruce metcalf was writing and bruce metcalf he's a he's a jeweler but he's also a very good writer. And he published regularly in the snack magazine, Metalsmith. It's, it's the magazine of the Society of North American Goldsmiths. And from there, from his texts, I then went to other, uh, to other writers. Also, this Brute Metcalf, he was, it, was, it was very accessible. It was not so difficult. Huh? Uh, because, for example, 
Glenn Adamson. He's a very good writer and he's a very smart person, gives wonderful lectures, but his writings are difficult. And uh, if I give that to my students, it's, it's, it takes them so much time to get to understand it and then the fun is gone. So I'm also, to, when I try to advise, I try to a little bit more low profile. What I also think is a, is a, a key work is the Craftsman of Richard Sennett. I had much pleasure in reading that. And then in Scandinavia, there has been lots of things uh, written about craft. And the good thing there, I'm, they are not native speakers, not native English speakers. And then they, they write more accessible for, um, for my students, for example. Jordan um, Weiterberg is one of those who, who write very nice, uh, makes very nice work. And then I also wrote down Marianne Unger uh, for the jewelry people, Lisbeth and Besten. And uh, what is now very popular, I see with our PhD students, is Tim Ingold. He's very, he's the man, and they, they, all, they all read his books. So that might also be something. He's not, a, it's not, he's not writing about craft, eh? but uh, he's writing about lots and lots of other things and uh, he touches upon craft touches upon research on life on nature brilliant thanks so much and then i my last question is is there anything you are currently working on that you're willing to share and something that we might want to keep an eye out for a presentation or an exhibition or are you working on a new book or <laughs> what can we expect in the near future from you? I have to disappoint you a little bit, uh, Sophie. I'm not working on uh, a specific project. But what I, I uh, see with my own work is that it's changing. I'm going to this uh, two-dimensional so I'm exploring there new things. I'm making things in my studio, trying things out. Recently, I've been thinking about, yeah, maybe I have to put another solo show together, but that will not be for this year. I mean, a solo show and making in, in uh, we are already end of April. So I presume it will be the end of 22 that one can expect something, something new. It's a slow profession. Oh, but that is the beauty, I think, of your work. You can tell that there has been time in the making and it's to be celebrated, isn't it? Looking at his inspirational work and listening to David speak, it is evident that working in metal and producing crafted pieces is a balancing act between perfecting and risk-taking. For his quest to write the next chapter of an old technique and showing us how to take inspiration from practice in doing and reflecting, I would like to thank you very much, David. Your work and words illustrate that committing to a life of artistic making is one of continuous questioning and evolving and that our medium holds plenty more to be discovered. Thanks so much for joining me for this inspiring conversation. Thank you for the invitation.
Next month, I'll be joined by another guest, so watch this space to find out who it is. But for now, this was Sophie Boons for the BAJ podcast episode titled Mastery and Risk-Taking with Granulation and Metal with Dr. David Hugge. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.